Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. If we go back just not that far, right to the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency in 2008, when he was running for president, the country was comfortably 54 percent white and Christian. And again, that's all Christians put together, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, non-denominational, white, non-Hispanic Christians. By the time we have the 2016 election, um, that number has dropped down to 43 Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you listen to the show, you know that one of my big arguments here, a thesis of the show really, is that demographic change is it's like the tectonic force underneath a lot of American politics. That so many of the fights we have, the controversies we see, the debates we're engaged in, they are downstream of these demographic changes. We don't always see them this way. Um, we see them as individuals. We see them as their own special little snowflakes each and every time. But they're over and over and over again manifestations of, of changing power dynamics. On the show, I've talked a lot and talked with people a lot about the changing racial dynamics of the country um, and also the changing native and foreign-born dynamics. Um, in race, we're, we're moving towards uh, what demographers call majority-minority America, sort of around 2040, uh, the number of uh, Americans who identify as white on census will be lower than the number uh, who do not. Um, and then secondarily, we are moving towards having a record foreign-born population. And, and you can see both those fights all around you. The one we don't talk about as much on the show is religious. But we're seeing very similar trends there too. We're seeing a decline in particularly white Christians. We're seeing a rise in the religiously unaffiliated. Uh, there was data just last year in 2018 that if you cut apart mainline Protestant and evangelical Protestant and Catholic and all these different things, that religiously unaffiliated Americans are, are now the largest group. Now, whether or not you should make them a group, whether or not you should think about them as a group, that's actually a good question. But nevertheless, we hadn't seen that before. And by 2050, um, if you cut, bring the Protestants together, you might see unaffiliated above them too. This is a, a huge context, I think, for what is happening in American politics. I think it's a, a context for the Tea Party, for very much for Donald Trump and why he has been so dominant among uh, white evangelical voters. And then there's been this debate recently between Sarah Bamari and David French, which you may or may not have been following. I describe it at some length in the show, so I won't do it here. 
But it's very much about whether or not the Christian right in America needs to leave behind the niceties of pluralism and debate and trying to to, to, to win fights through the political system as we know it and embrace a, a kind of illiberalism, um, whether or not that something is happening here that is now outside the boundaries of, of what can be corrected through normal politics and there's a break glass in case of emergency moment happening. That debate is happening there in this very elevated, cerebral, uh, pundity way. But 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 Trump is a, a real locus of it, and he shows the way it is actually playing out in politics. So exploring this divide and this sense among um, white Christians, particularly, that they're losing the country. And that in losing the country, something is being done unto them that needs to be corrected and that the way they're losing the country is unfair and outside the boundaries of normal politics and it may um, necessitate a similar reaction from them. You don't have to agree with it, but you do have to understand it, at least if you want to understand what's going on here. So I'm going to have a couple shows on this coming up. We've got Rod Dreher coming, who I'm excited about. He's a, a fascinating guy on these topics. But I wanted to start by really digging into the demography. So my guest today is Robert Jones. And Robert Jones is the CEO of Public Religion Research Institute, as well as the author of the book, The End of White Christian America. His company, a corporation, foundation, <laughs> um, his group does amazing, deep polling and data analysis on how the religious political landscape is changing moment by moment, year by year. His book on this has really shaped a lot of my thinking here. And he's just a, a fascinating, thoughtful guy on these issues. So he's the perfect person to, to begin this conversation and give a sense of how of how the landscape is changing underneath all of us. Changes that we often feel and very much see reflected in politics, but not always changes that we discuss. As always, my email is EzraKleinshow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinshow at Vox.com. Here is Robert Jones. Robert Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. So what is white Christian America? <laughs> well, uh, it, it's really a metaphor um, that I used in- Isn't uh, it always? <laughs> <laughs> in my most recent book, uh, you know, to talk about this really a kind of cultural and political edifice that mostly white Protestants built um, from the beginning of the country on that was really, you know, the controlling cultural force in the country for most of its life. But give me the non-metaphor version because yeah. it's also a- data collection that you're using. It's a category that you've created. What What yeah. is it? Like who, well, who like counts? Technically, right? So if you're really sorting this out quantitatively, it's white non-Hispanic Christians. And that is um, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, non-denominational, anyone who identifies as white non-Hispanic and Christian. So when I get to crunching the data, that's what I really mean. And why is that a category? I mean, if you look back at the history of this, there have been deep divisions between Protestants and Catholics. There has been be between the Orthodox and everyone else. Yeah. How is white Christian America uh, a group that you can actually draw a boundary around and say, like, this is this is one thing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, typically, you know, in political science and social sciences generally – uh, there are divisions, right? You look at white evangelical Protestants and white mainline Protestants. They're more liberal counterparts. And then white Catholics are kind of over here. And then you have Orthodox and other Mormons and others, uh, non-denominational uh, folks. Um, but what I realize is that um, race as a category has really stitched these groups together and increasingly so over time. So the divisions between white Catholics and white Protestants, for example, were huge in the first part of the uh, 20th century. But as they begin to find political common cause really in the late 20th century, those walls kind of came down. And as a result, we actually saw attitudes starting lining up as they begin to all be Republican. Why do you say race is the, the, the stitcher there? Well, you know, what we see here is that, again, you know, you would 
you see such – even as late as 1960, right? I mean there were big Catholic Protestant fights over whether uh, John F. Kennedy was going to be taking orders from the pope should he uh, be elected. And like you know, he had this meeting in Houston where Protestant minister after Protestant minister stood up and asked him all these questions. And every question was essentially some form of isn't the pope going to control the U.S. once you get elected? Uh, we don't really see that today. And what, I, what really has moved them together um, is – um, uh, I mean, the real moves of white evangelicals, for example, to be Republicans was around um, reactions to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And so you have this like um, kind of white flight really from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party uh, that happens between really 1965 and Ronald Reagan's uh, presidency. And then right after that, you have white Catholics really um, coming in with the rise of the Christian right movement in, in the 1970s and the 1980s. What stitches all that together really is a kind of racial interest politics. Because I, I want to hold on this for a minute because I think this is a place in the analysis that, that is important and, and also arguable. So when you hear a lot of the stories of this period, something gets focused on a lot is abortion, yep. right? Which is not a, a, an issue of race, um, right. or at least not in the main way people think about it. So the stories of sort of Jerry Falwell rising up and the rise of the moral majority, yeah. um, why do you yeah. think that racial issues are the, are, are, are the key thing that brings this group together? Yeah. Well, I mean, the history is actually pretty clear. I mean, there's there's a story that white evangelicals tell about themselves, and then there's like the historical data that suggests something a little bit more complicated. Uh, you know, for example, the first uh, Southern Baptist Convention that meets after Roe v. Wade actually praises the decision. Um, really? Right? Yeah. So it, it says it basically sees it as a Catholic issue, right, and not as a Protestant issue. Um, and and so George H. W. Bush also praises the decision um, right after um, Roe v. Wade is decided. And it's only later, really, that abortion gets appended. But what really pulls white evangelicals out into the public realm uh, was um, the threat of Bob Jones University losing its federal um, loans and stuff because it was violating uh, the Civil Rights Act by having a, a policy on campus that prohibited blacks and whites from dating. Um, so it, it it was kind of had this discriminatory policy on campus, but that's what brought Jerry Falwell uh, into the political realm uh, and where he started. Because, you know, just to rewind a few years before that, and you've got Jerry Falwell saying things like, you know, pastors should stay in the pulpit. They're concerned with with not with political matters, um, but with spiritual matters, which was a backhanded criticism of Martin Luther King Jr., by the way. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So that was like a sense That of, was the context for that line? Absolutely. I did not know that. Um, it was it was a way of saying Martin Luther King Jr. is doing an illegitimate thing by taking his religious oh, credentials into the Lord. public realm. I just need to absorb that. For a <laughs> yeah, you know, it, I mean, it's one of these things where, like, even even for for me. So I grew up evangelical, right? I grew up Southern Baptist in Mississippi, and so having grown up in that world, it's taken quite a bit of kind of stepping back to see what's really an obvious pattern once you start to look at it. But there's a very different public story um, that you have to just peel back the layers a little bit to get get to uh, kind of a, you know more, the more fundamental. Dynamics. Just to offer a little bit of a roadmap of this conversation. So I want to build the sort of demographic and category and definitional yeah. superstructure here. And then I want to use it to talk about what's going on in, in politics now. So we're going to go, yeah. if, you're, if you're listening along, I'm, I'm going to try to sort of build up through the, the basic foundation of your analysis because I think it, it casts a lot of light on where we're going. But I want to make sure as we do that that we keep both sides of it together. So there's the, the side of the story that's a race story. Um, the side of the story is a very political story. And then there's also the side of the story that is a culture story. You quote E.J. Dion, for instance, a, a great liberal pundit saying that uh, – 
basically Protestantism, but white Protestantism uh, in this case, was the civic and moral glue that held American public life together. So what what was the the upside of this cultural hegemony of this group? Well, you know, I mean, you could go to any town in America. You probably can't walk three or four blocks without tripping over some civic institution. For example, they got built a hospital, um, you know, um, uh, lots of private schools got built, um, lots of uh, social services uh, got built, um, adoption agencies, orphanages. You know, there's a whole civic infrastructure that this world really brought um, into being. Um, I think that's kind of at the institutional level, but also at the cultural level, there was a way in which it provided, um, I call it kind of a lingua franca, like a kind of common language, you know, a kind of moral framework um, for the country that for sure wasn't universally shared, but it was that group was dominant enough that it gave a kind of um, coherent moral language to the debates in the country. I want to circle back to race for a minute. What was the role of white Christian America in the civil rights movement? Hmm. You know, I, I uh, so I, I'm, I mentioned I'm from Mississippi, Jackson specifically, um, and um, uh, Jackson has just opened up in the last couple of years a civil rights museum. Uh, it's the only state-sponsored civil rights museum in existence, by the huh. way, sort of funded by the state of Mississippi. So being from, you know, being white. Who pushed that, what political coalition pushed that into You know, being? I mean, it was, it was pretty broad. I mean, we had William Winter and other folks who had been kind of active in giving a more rec- kind of honest reckoning of the racial history in Mississippi. But um, it was a pretty broad-based, you know, effort in the African-American community as well, kind of bringing this together. Um, and but what you know, I went down fairly skeptical, uh, to be honest with you, right? So, so I was raised as someone white and, and from Mississippi, thinking, okay, what, how honest is a state-sponsored museum going to be um, on these issues? And I was actually quite um, surprised um, at how blunt uh, the history really was. I mean, there are these columns, uh, floor-to-ceiling columns with names of victims of lynching. Um, you know, twelve-foot columns uh, filled up all through the all through the space. Uh, big section of Emmett Till. Uh, but, the, but to your point, um, the there is a whole entire section on not just the role of African-American churches and where we hear a lot about, right? There were centers of organizing and resistance and empowerment for African-Americans during the civil rights movement, but the role of white churches. Um, and they were really, in many ways, the linchpin of the massive resistance to civil rights uh, in Mississippi. So, you know, there's a couple of theories out there. One of them is... Uh, that they were kind of captors of the culture, that they were kind of more passive and just kind of carried along by the current. But I think, the again, the weight of the evidence, once you start peeling it back just a little bit, um, shows that, no, no, they were actually the center tentpole holding up the whole project. Because this has come up, I don't want to jump too far ahead in our conversation, mm-hmm. but but I've had some discussions with people where there's an argument that is the culture becomes less Christian, it becomes less forgiving, it becomes more politically tribal. And and I have my issues with this argument. Mm-hmm. But something that gets brought up is the civil rights movement. And, and the way in which it gets brought up, I think, is not that every Christian, and particularly every white Christian, was on the right side of it, but that the superstructure of Christian morality mm. created the lingua franca, yeah. the, the the cultural um, space in which the argument could be made and then eventually won. And now given that you've had um, liberatory movements in a lot of countries, not all of them Christian, I'm, I'm, I'm never sure how to weight that, yeah. but it was clearly part of it. Yeah. Um, there, there was, there's clearly something to that on, on both sides. Uh, and so it's always seemed to me like a very complicated legacy in that space where people want to claim that win for Christianity and there's something to that. But but at the same time, I mean, Alabama still has Jefferson Davis's Bible as the official state Bible that Christianity has been on both sides of these conflicts yeah. in this country. 
No, that's right. And that Bible, right, was uh, the same Bible that uh, the United Daughters of the Confederacy would haul out at the consecration of each Confederate monument. Uh, you know, it, it, it played that role. And every governor, by the way, of Alabama has taken the oath of office on that Bible um, from Jefferson Davis, uh, as far as I know, from the time of the Civil War until the present. So it's a pretty remarkable kind of artifact, you know, there that still has a living presence uh, with us today. One comment on this, though, that I'll, um, I've been reading a lot of history, and one one piece I'll bring up on the, on this point, though, is um, Frederick Douglass, um, his first autobiography, w- which was published in 1845, um, which, by the way, was the year that the Southern Baptists split from their Northern brethren over the issue of slave-owning missionaries. Like, so, uh, wanting the right of Southerners to own slaves and be held up as missionaries in good standing. Uh, that same year, he published his autobiography. And what's often, I think, overlooked at the end is he has this whole appendix where he takes on white Christianity and his his experience of white Christianity. And he ends it with this like scathing and um, just heartbreaking uh, thing where he, he just says, look, you know, my experience and the experience of other enslaved people has been this, that short of being a slave, the next worst thing was being the slave of a Christian master um, because they in fact treated us worse uh, than non-Christian slaves precisely because they had a kind of moral and religious backing to their cruelty that sort of curbed their own human impulses. Um, uh, and it's just a kind of remarkably damning uh, statement. So I want to come back now to the, the, the story you're telling in the book and in your work, which is about the the declining demographics of this group. So talk me through some of the demographic trends here. Yeah. Well, you know, what we see, we have, you know, good data really through the, you know, second half of the 20th century. So we can kind of track it there. But um, and but most of the movement actually happens really in the last couple of decades and we, where we really see it's really 90s into the 2000s where we start seeing this movement. Um, and so basically what we, what we see is that the country, you know, historically has been majority white and Christian. Um, and, but if we go back just not that far, right to the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency in 2008, when he was running for president, the country was comfortably 54 percent white and Christian. And again, that's all Christians put together, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, non-denominational, white, non-Hispanic Christians. By the time we have the 2016 election, um, that number has dropped down to 43 uh, percent of the country, and by the it's time, dropped by eleven points by eleven points in and, eight years and eight years, and by the time and and our last data has it at forty one. It's about a one point three percentage point drop every year over the last decade. Why the acceleration in the drop? Well, it's a couple of things going on. Um, so this this measure right is a racial and religious measure. So part of it is the declining number of whites in the country, um, just that. But that doesn't get you this precipitous. Yeah, that's drop, too fast. Right, it's it's much too fast. The other piece of it um, is young people leaving. Um, white Christian churches. Um, so what you can see at the same time is that the median age uh, of every white Christian group is going up, which you know tells you that where they're losing members is really on the younger side of the um, You've category. You've data in the book that I thought was interesting here that today young adults 18 to 29 are less than half as likely to be white Christians as seniors. So nearly seven in 10 American seniors are white Christians compared to fewer than three in 10 yeah. young adults. I mean, that's stark. It is stark. I mean, when you look at the generational um, differences, it's basically linear. With each generational cohort uh, getting younger, you have fewer and fewer white Christians. And it really is, yeah, this, you know, it's a factor of three or four between seniors and Americans under the age of, of 30. And putting aside the the browning of America question here, that's a cultural issue that is about the the brand and the sense of what Christianity means in this country. I mean, what, it, yeah. what is the... 
what 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 accounts for such a different level of transmission yeah. in Christian identification between um, these generations? Well, the you know the bookend of this is the rise of um, the uh, religiously unaffiliated, sometimes called the nuns, n o n e s s, right? The people have no religious affiliation. Um, and that number, again, um, if you look at seniors, only about one in 10 seniors today claim no religious affiliation. But if you look at Americans under the age of 30, it's 40 percent that claim no religious affiliation today. Um, so, again, like four times the number of seniors, um, right? And that's different. That's new. That's not something that always happens. Right. So if you take baby boomers back into their 20s, they're only about 10 to 15 percent unaffiliated uh, and presumably, if you go greatest gen, I mean, I don't know if we have that data, but yeah. it does not, from my reading of history, it does not seem like that's how people were right. 80 years ago. No, no, no. We've never seen a generation like this being being somewhere like four, four in 10 unaffiliated. You talk about a 06 survey of 16 to 29-year-olds that found that the top three attributes that young Americans associated with present-day Christianity were being anti-gay, judgmental, and hypocritical. To put my cards on the table, I think there's a lot more beauty and compassion and wisdom in Christianity than that. But what that sounds like to me is that the political brand of Christianity, which I do not love in this country, has become its dominant brand. I think that's right. I mean, what's remarkable about that survey, actually, that's not a PRRI survey. That's a Barna survey, right, which is a, a, an evangelical um, research company conducting even. Uh, research for evangelicals, right? So even it's kind of an internal uh, or inside baseball kind of study. And it really was a marketing study to figure out like why they were losing so many members and what the brand problem. And in fact, the book was called Unchristian. And the, the conclusion of the book was that Christianity's got um, a branding problem. But do you uh, think that comes people. from its political dimensions? I mean, those yeah. that sounds like when young people are thinking about Christians, they're thinking about Jerry Falwell. You know, I think that's right. And you got to remember. Not William Barber, say. Right. You got to remember that like, when younger, like the millennials grew up, um, they grew up with the rise of the Christian right as the dominant expression right, in, the in Christian, public space. I heard about James Dobson all the time. Right. 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 Like that was the most important Christian in America to me when I was, you know, whatever it was. Um, and, and that influenced my thinking. I mean, I've done more religious reading in, in the years since, but that's really one way of thinking about it. And the way he came to me was not in his dimension as someone who offers advice on, you know, your – I mean, he himself is a more complicated figure than his political manifestation. But but if the political manifestation is the one you get, it to me, it seems that what has happened actually is not that uh, – it's not that as Christianity has receded, we've become more politically tribal, but actually that one, one of the reasons Christianity is receding is that it had become more politically tribal and then it just got absorbed into the politics wars. I think that's certainly been a problem for young people. I mean, we've done focus groups on this. We've done polling on this. And, you know, when we when we look at – we talk to younger people about um, – in, in focus groups, they mention things like, yeah, the just the partisanship, not just political activity, but the partisan political activity, particularly of churches on the more conservative end of the spectrum. And then we've asked people in surveys, people who were raised religious and then left. Um, and by the way, most of them leave by the time they're 20. This is not a college phenomenon. It's really a pre – it's a teenager phenomenon. But And most of them say uh, – we asked them the reason they left. About a third of them um, uh, cite specifically negative treatment of gay and lesbian people or negative teachings about gay and lesbian people as, you know, as a reason why they left. So that's a one way in which um, I think a very particular you know, and prominent um, issue on the on the on the political right came to be at odds with um, you know the younger generation. How different does America look on this from European countries or from Canada uh, in terms of religious affiliation? Yeah, in terms yeah. of what is happening among young people. 
Well, I mean, you know, I, I joke sometimes when I'm presenting these numbers that if I were in you know, Toronto or London or Sweden, you know, uh, and, and I was saying 40 percent of young people are religiously unaffiliated. I mean, people would be looking around the room thinking like, how did we get to 60 percent <laughs> affiliation among young people? Yeah. Like, what, how did that happen? You know, it would be a, a remarkable and dramatic revival has happened. Um, but, you know, so the U.S. still remains a kind of exceptional country in this way that you know, we have a quarter of the country who's religiously unaffiliated overall, but that means that three quarters is still affiliated in some way, not just with Christianity, but with other religions broadly. That's still a pretty religious country, particularly compared to Western Europe. So does that give some sucker to to those who argue that, in fact, Christianity has to be fighting uh, a, a war on the modernist versions of liberalism, and I mean here philosophical liberalism and and its political manifestations, because you know, you can read that data uh, to say that there's a problem in American Christianity coming from its political warfare. But you can also read that data to say that in places where you don't have that kind of warfare, um, the decline has been faster, that there's something that there's some incompatibility between like modern political systems and and Christianity that is more that that is even more uh, tense. Yeah, you know, I've I've always been a little resistant to make too tight comparisons between the U.S. and and Europe or other places, mostly because the U.S. context has been so unique, right? We've never had a state church. Um, you know, Germany, uh, like you know, you still, uh, you know, up until very recently, uh, you could even you could even opt out. You would get your tax bill, and it would have the line on there supporting the, you know the local church and the parish, and uh, that was part of your taxes, right? Is supporting the Lutheran church. Um, but you know, we've never kind of had that system, which so I think it makes the dynamic very very different um, in this country, and I think the racial divide in this country and the way it is run through religion is the other thing that makes it just very, very unique. Yeah, this would be a very different story if the racial divide seems subordinate to the religious divide. Yeah. Right? If you thought – if politically what was happening was that you looked at politics, you said, ah, well, all Christians vote this way. Right. And But instead, you know, you look at politics – you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't – is there a single major group of Christian – of white Christians that Donald Trump lost? No. Or and, a single and, and major it, group of non-white Christians that he won? The, no. And the only group yeah. that moved – at all. Like, and that's the remarkable thing about the 2016 election. If you look at the religious landscape, compare it to every um, election since Reagan, the only group that even moved in 2016 in the religious landscape were Mormons. Um, they moved by about 20 points, um, but it's because they had Evan McMullen, um, you know, sort of staking out a kind of anti-Trump thing. And they had Romney. Um, yeah, I've always thought this is to the great you know, credit of yeah, Mormons, so. <laughs> at the late. So it, it's interesting, though, that they're, you know, so if you're looking for a group that was like, going to put their money where their mouth was in terms of being values voters, um, right? Um, I mean, you're going to have to look to Mormons to kind of holding that up. You write in the book that by 2051, if current trends continue, religiously unaffiliated Americans could comprise as large a percentage of the population as Protestants. Um, I saw some data the other day that in 2018, if you cut apart mainline and evangelical Protestants, unaffiliated are already um, – the nuns are already a, a larger group. This, Yeah, that's right. This strikes me given that uh, – you know, if you, again taking the 2051 projection, that's pretty close to when we, in theory, become a majority-minority country racially. This is a lot of demographic change and power change for a generation to undergo. You know, it it really is. I mean, I think that's one of the things to say um, about people who maybe are scratching their heads and saying, like, "What's the big deal? Like, why? You know, why all this kind of anger and angst?" And um, but but I do think that this. Like people don't read statistics. They don't kind of read studies for the most part. But these changes are How fast. How dare you? Fast. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, this is sort of not uh, not <laughs> in my interest to say this either. But but these changes are big enough to feel. 
They're fast enough to feel. I think that's the real um, kicker here. You know, they have concrete local expressions like billboards going up in Spanish, um, you know, and neighborhoods shifting uh, within a generation. This kind of throws the ball way forward where I want to take the conversation. But I always think this is an important point that it's not just that they're fast enough to feel, but they're accelerated in the places we feel them because – marketing and culture production are extremely focused on young urbanites. Young urbanites are not like as religious and non-religious as the general population. They are much more um, non-religious and much more non-white than the general population. And so there's this way in which wherever America is, what you see when you turn on the television or what you see when you look at a Nike ad or a Gillette ad is a vision of a country that is still 20 or 30 years from from being the country. And then Conversely, what you see in politics is tilted towards older, whiter mm-hmm. Americans. So, like, I have this rule. I think we've talked about it before that political power runs ten years um, yeah. behind demography, and cultural power runs ten years ahead of it. And that creates a really, a, a real sense on all sides that everybody is losing all the time. Yeah, because like nobody is state, nobody has stable power. You know, and we're we are in this liminal space, right? Where I think we we can feel it um, because the cultural sh- changes have already happened, right? So we have moved. During President Obama's um, tenure as president, we moved from being a majority white Christian country to one that was no longer majority white Christian country and decisively so. Not not you can't quibble right, with the numbers. They move very decisive and fast. Um, you know, and I think that since has kind of held us up. But at the ballot box, because white Christians turn out to vote, um, you can actually see the expression of America 10 years ago at the ballot box. So, um, for example, white white evangelicals, the last time they were a quarter of the country was in the middle of George W. Bush's presidency. Um, but in the 2018 election, uh, midterm elections, they were 26 percent of voters. Right. So they have essentially, because of turnout, able to kind of rewind the clock to their political power uh, where where it was in the kind of in the 2018, they 2018 they were 26. How come Republicans didn't do? How come Republicans <laughs> didn't do better then? Uh, well, I think it's where they're stacked up, right? That they're they they tend to be stacked up in kind of southern you know southern states and stuff. And but you can see the you can see the tilt even like some Dallas suburbs right flipped uh, Democratic. But I've seen this graph yeah. you've made. So yeah. basically, they have held at 26, 26, 26 like every election since roughly 04. Yeah, despite declining as an absolute percentage um, in every election. Yeah, I mean, so, so just to kind of yeah, so that's right. They've been you know uh, all the way back like five you know four to five election cycles now um, at 26% of the electorate, even as their numbers have gone from being like about a quarter of the demographic uh, of, of the country down in, in 2018, they were only 15% of the country in 2018, and they were still 26% of voters, so 11 points over represented. So this is a way in which I wonder about some of these underlying demographic projections. So let me think about the way to make this argument. When you decompose the majority-minority projections – They get a little weird. Mm. So it turns out that you're counting people who are mixed race as non-white. And so you begin to look at something and it can feel that you're looking at two groups, right? By cutting that category, white and non-white, it's like two groups. And now the non-white group is going to be bigger. But in fact, you're looking at a world where those are not equal. The non-white group is a lot of different groups that have a lot of different interests. And the white group is white, which also includes a lot of people with different interests, but just speaking racially here. And so – the way we talk about that obscures the fact that whites will be a plurality. Um, they will be the largest group, like way into the foreseeable future. And then similarly here, when we talk about religiously unaffiliated Americans becoming you know, larger than Protestants, 
that sounds like, oh, well, like here's a group and it's going to become bigger than the other group. Yep. But religiously unaffiliated Americans aren't a group. They don't go to church. They don't get turned out. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> They're yeah. just like a bunch of people who don't have a group actually. And so I wonder sometimes whether or not these, these kinds of projections um, mislead as much as they illuminate. Well, you know, it's it's certainly complicated. Uh, just one quick point on the unaffiliated. Um, despite the fact that they're now a quarter of the country, they've never broken twelve percent of voters. Right, to right? that point, because they, they're younger, they tend not to turn out as 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 much as as older white Christians do. So there is this kind of weird imbalance that happens at the at the ballot box. But and because they're and, not a group. Well, it's partially that, um, and, and well, you can't reach them. In that's one right. Place. If you're thinking about outreach and activism, and like if you're a and kind community of and culture, and you know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying there's nothing there, but that includes people who are like hardcore atheists. Yeah, it includes like new agers. It includes Wiccans. People, and, Wiccans. Yeah, that's like, right. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean, it includes people who dabble in Buddhism but do not self-identify. But you know what right. I mean? They're not. It's not one thing. Some of these people yeah. would hate each other. <laughs> That's right. And some people who have like rejected the institutional forms of church but still pray, still believe in yep. God, like still have a kind of spiritual life that's just not institutionally connected. Yes, I live Sorry. in the Bay Area, yeah. I should note here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've met many of these people. Yeah, right. No, it is It is interesting in terms of mobilization. It really would be like next to impossible. You know, there's just no like institutional mechanism to sort of get them all in one net, if you will. Um, what, what's interesting, though, is on white, I mean, so, you know, it kind of harkened back uh, to uh, James Baldwin here. You know, one of the things I uh, love that he wrote is like, you know, like white people became white in America, right? That 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 it it was a kind of opportunity for Norwegians and French people and people from Great Britain and Welsh people and Irish people. like, And there was this kind of like contested who's in, who's out. Um, Irish, for example, weren't white. They they couldn't check Caucasian on the immigration forms, right? Um, they, they had to check Celt, um, which was a non-Caucasian category back then. Jews were Hebrews, not Caucasians, yeah. right? And so there's like this really complicated. Yeah, I mean, the 1920 immigration bill is meant to keep those that like disgusting right. Nordic strain of DNA of like what we would now be like <laughs> like apex white people, right? Um, but it's meant to keep them out. Yeah, really complicated. So I think we're at a point where we're going to have to interrogate these categories yeah. again, right? But what's notable in political space um, is that despite the fact that like if you really, you know, start peeling the white onion, you know, and figuring what's at its core, there's nothing there. Politically speaking, it's still a pretty powerful category that sorts people's behaviors and attitudes in some pretty predictable ways. So it's in terms of self-identity and understanding, it, it, it still is a pretty powerful political like reality in the country. Okay, so I want to push you on this yeah. because I don't buy this if you peel the onion there's nothing there. I've been doing I mean to some degree if you peel the onion enough there's nothing there like yeah. we're all made out of atoms and in fact there's more space between the <laughs> electrons like there's really yeah. nothing there. But for my book I've been doing a lot of work on identity. Yeah. And identity is like everything else real and unreal simultaneously, but it's really real. Yeah. I mean it it works and the way we identify matters. And one of the truisms about identity and particularly majoritarian identities, whiteness, Christianity, is they activate under threat. So when you have a dominant identity, it can just become like the air you breathe, you know, American. We don't right. think that much moment to moment about yeah, being yeah. American. But as soon as there's a foreign threat, all of a sudden, like, we're really American. And one of the, the things to now argue the other side of that question about majority-minority issues is it whether or not it is true that – I think it is true that these like lines on the chart make it seem like 
white Christians are losing more power than they really are. They're going to be still the biggest group for as long as we can imagine um, or certainly as long as um, we're, we're projecting. But the flip of that is that – the biggest organized group, I should say. But the flip of that is that as they feel threatened, that identity is going to get a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. And so what you were saying about um, whiteness expanding to include a lot of other kinds of people, which you know has a lot to do with World War II, but also a lot of people think has to do with the civil rights movement and you know wanting to sort of have an identity within all that. Um, Christianity, you, like old sort of Protestant Catholic divisions are evaporating. I mean, you're going to have a much stronger uh, white Christian dimension. And I think you're seeing some of that in our politics already. You know, I think in some ways Donald Trump is a really good example of this. Like here's somebody who at another time uh, amidst a stronger version of white Christian America might have been rejected as a loose, godless heathen. But now you need him. And as long as mm-hmm. he's willing to stand with like you under your flag, like you're all together. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with most of that, 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 you know, we, we're seeing even in the data, um, what's remarkable is that if you look at the kind of subgroups of white Christianity, they have very different histories, right? You sort of white evangelicals deeply embedded in the South and the kind of lower Midwest with this kind of slave-owning Confederate history to them. You have the mainline Protestants mostly anchored in the Northeast and upper Midwest, you know, with a kind of this kind of Norwegian but also northern industrial sensibilities around them. And then you've got white Catholics with an immigrant, you know, more, yeah. much more recent immigrant mm-hmm. history. Um, and yet what we've seen is that all of those kind of have dissolved a little bit into um, these groups, despite their very different histories, um, now holding very, very similar views. So what we see over time is like white mainline, and they're moving really more toward the white evangelical um, conservative Republican view here. So in a sense, white evangelicals are winning <laughs> the right. kind of Catholic Protestant battle. So, so, but it's, it's remarkable to see degrees of difference, but not of kind on issues of race, immigration, those kinds of things between these groups. And if that keeps happening, one of the implications of it, and you saw this a little bit with Donald Trump's election results, one of the implications of it is that you can have a shrinking demographic group that nevertheless becomes more united in its interests and so expands in terms of its political power because it votes more as a block. No, I think that's right. I mean, there was a very explicit – I mean, the Catholic barrier was so big that there was a very explicit movement in the 90s to uh, theologically justify basically allowing Catholics into the Christian right movement. Uh, as uh, Catholics and Protestants together document that kind of came out and it needed a kind of theological justification. I don't think you need that anymore, right? There's a political – um, necessity uh, to it. And and I think that was actually part of what was driving that theological justification was the realization that um, really this movement, the Christian right movement in particular, needed white, Christ- white Catholic foot soldiers really to accomplish what it needed to accomplish. So I want to talk about the subjective experience of, of some of these trends. So you write about some polling that shows, and I'm quoting you here, that the pattern is unambiguous. Most white Christians believe that America is on a downhill slide while strong majorities of most other groups in the country say things are improving. That's pretty telling to me. Do you want to talk a bit about that data? Yeah. You know, I mean, I've taken to calling, um, you know, white evangelicals in particular nostalgia voters rather than, you know, values voters for this reason. That I, I And um, so, you know, one, one just really concrete way is looking at this question. We asked a question, um, basically asked people, do you agree or disagree uh, that since the 1950s, American way of life uh, and culture has changed for the better or changed for the worse, right? Pretty basic question. Turns out that question consistently divides the country right down the middle. Um, and the two political parties look like mirror opposites. Basically, two-thirds of Republicans say things have changed for the worse. 
Two-thirds of Democrats say things have changed for the better, and all white Christian groups are out on that side of things, saying with the Republicans saying that things have changed for the worse since the 1950s. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Do you want to talk a bit about Protestants, Catholics, and Jews on the Supreme Court? Because I found this pretty interesting <laughs> in your book. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it, it's worth noting that uh, for most of the country's history, the Supreme Court has been a Protestant entity. I mean, has has been Congress and the presidency, right? right? That has been one symbolic expression of kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant power um, uh, in the country. Uh, but uh, today, if you kind of look back um, with the retirement of Stevens, um, we ended up with a court that had absolutely zero Protestants on it. It was a Supreme Court made up of entirely Catholics and Jews. Uh, now, if you go back to the 1920s and you think about the KKK's worries about where America was going, I mean, this this would have been their absolute nightmare, right? I mean, the KKK was set up not just to protect sort of white supremacy, but Protestant right. supremacy in the country, right? So Jews and Catholics running the Supreme Court, um, you know, quite something. I, I, on this point, I do think it's notable that um, there was no great flip out in the country, right? When this happened, there were news stories written about it, this transition and, you know, not just not, right, this not happened a lot of commentary. At the same moment, moment as an African American president. That's too. true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so this I mean, all happens at the same this time. This to me, I keep wanting to come back to this. I think that the level of demographic change we're undergoing and its visibility is like the governing context of American politics. Like above everything else, I think so much in like. Everything we know about human beings and the way they act in groups suggests we are exquisitely attuned to this kind of thing. And we're undergoing a really tremendous change with – I don't ex – I think people will like hate me if I call this grace at this moment given Donald Trump and like all the mm. terrible things going on. But given what has happened in other countries at other times and the kind of bloodshed you see mm. among this kind of power shift, it, there's some amount of uh, of grace. I mean there's something in here that you can look at as an optimistic story and how well our political institutions are managing to channel the conflict into politics as opposed to somewhere else. But, but whether or not you agree with me on that, 
it's a lot of change. I mean, that you have yeah. at one moment the Supreme Court no longer being at all Protestant at the same time that you have the first African-American president. That's – and if that's in 2010, amidst the first yeah. woman speaker of the house. That's right. Yeah. Like that's a lot actually altogether. It, it, is, it is a lot. You know, I, I – and, and these symbols matter. These you know? symbols matter. They, People they, feel yeah, this. Yeah, that's right. It, it, and so they, they, sent, they have a kind of maybe a rumbling sense of changes on the ground at home. But these sorts of things like really matter. I, re- I remember um, uh, like a quick kind of quirky personal story, but I think that's the way these things creep into people's consciousnesses. Um, so I'm a little bit of a political geek. So um, I've had like with both my kids, like these little placemats that have like all the president's things. So you put a P or a Cheerio down, right? And they play these games of which president it, it's on. Um, and I remember with my, my older daughter, right? It was a sea of white male faces. But when my son was born much later, um, I got one for him and it had Barack Obama right there on the end of it. And he, who really sticks out, right? He's this African-American first, you know, a sea of white faces. And then boom, we have this African-American uh, there at the end of it. And I think just little things like that, you know, really do uh, make a difference. Uh, there, there's one chart that I put up sometimes that kind of to really put this into, into view in a visual way. I'll see if we can describe it. But basically, I put the decline of white Christians in the country, right, from majority to non-majority. Uh, and then I plot um, – support for same-sex marriage over the same time period, right? So, And so if you go just 2008 to 2016, uh, in 2008, it's kind of hard to remember at this point of view, point in time, but only four in 10 Americans supported same-sex marriage in 2008. And Barack Obama himself and the Democratic Party did not support as a matter of policy uh, same-sex marriage at, at that time. Again, by the time we get to 2016, that number is completely flipped on its head. It's only four in 10 oppose right. by the time we get to 2016. Um, and then I pluck just you know, Barack Obama's presidency down on top of that. And so if you do kind of pause and you're, if you're a conservative white Christian and you have had like opposing gay rights as kind of a key ex- political expression uh, there and you have, um, you see your demographics slide, you see a first African-American president and you see this flip on an issue that was at the top of your political agenda. I mean, it is a head spinning amount of change. I think something in here, there's a lot of interesting dynamics and threads in the Obama presidency of this. But Obama is the first African-American president. Um, but the primary way he is othered, the one that is really dominant in the culture People joke about the he's born in Kenya thing and the birtherism, and that was there. But the one that was more widely believed was that he was a Muslim. Yeah. It was a religious othering, actually, right. which I know related to – it obviously had racial dimensions in it. Like I'm not, I'm not saying anything different there. But I think that it is easy to dismiss how much the opposition to Obama had a, like, a religious suspicion dimension, that, that he wasn't of us. And to mm-hmm. your construct of white Christian America – that that feels relevant, right? If you understand it, not – I think it is one thing if you're sitting outside, I'm Jewish, right? Well, Christians are Christians and Obama's a Christian. But if you think about it differently and you think that, well, white Christian America feels like a thing unto itself and Obama isn't of that mm-hmm. thing, that I think illuminates some of those um, trends and, and, and dynamics a little bit more clearly. I think that's right. I mean still at the end of his – after eight years in, in office and presiding over – a number of things where he spoke about his faith, where he prayed, you know, Christian prayers. Uh, there were still um, sizable numbers. I think nearly half of Republicans still yeah. thought he was Muslim by the en- at, at the end of his presidency, not just at the end the campaign. And I do think you're right that that part of that was a way of othering that could come out post 9 11. Uh, that it kind of had these kind of sympathy with terrorists, right? Kind of wrapped around it, that kind of fear. 
uh, mongering, that he wasn't one of us. And then the other, I think, piece of it was that kind of direct racial attacks just at that point in culture, you know, the kind of our cultural development wouldn't have been acceptable. But this was a way of doing an end run, I think, around some direct racial attacks was the kind of other way of othering uh, um, an African-American president. That's so interesting to me. So I want to think about that for a second because I think that's right. Um, I I think that's certainly right. But I I almost want to hold on the religious piece of it for Mm, a minute mm -hmm. because it it always seemed to me that there was more information encoded that just as a religious dimension. So there's a really nice line from my colleague Zach Beecham about Trump that he says he's a nationalist, but what he is is an Mm ethno-nationalist. And there's a lot of work. Um, Eric Kaufman, who, uh, who's been on the show before, wrote um, White Shift, whose work I don't fully agree with some of its conclusions, but I think his analysis is very strong. You know, and he'll, he makes the point that countries have ethno-nationalist cultures, and that wraps together race, and it wraps together religion, and it wraps together a history, and it wraps together and, – and it becomes a, a national creed. But if you begin to threaten it, you realize it's not like a, like a supra-tribal nationalism. It, it actually like – it decomposes into these – Individual, like much more, um, much more tribal mm, dimensions, mm-hmm. and the dimension where Obama was mistrusted in his religious commitment, it seemed to me to be something people wanted to wave away. They wanted to wave it into um, uh, like a t- uh, post nine eleven mm-hmm, terrorism mm-hmm. thing. They wanted to wave wave it into a race thing. I guess the thing I'm getting at here, as somebody who's done a lot of work in this demographic shift and change space. I think we're a lot better at talking about the anxieties of racial shift than religious shift. Mm-hmm. There's something happening in the way white Christians, I think, to your to to, to your uh, categorization of it, are feeling that is wrapped up in but distinct from race itself, mm-hmm. and people are not nearly as attuned to it. But in some ways, the the changes there are faster. The changes there are more are more culturally visible. Um, and and Obama, I, I thought you were very smart to to argue that Obama represented that for people. He didn't just represent an African Americanism. He had this, you know, what coded as a Muslim name. He was believed by many of these people to be Muslim. I mean, it, it's a it's a religious loss too. And when you combine a religious and a racial loss, you get something very combustible. Yeah. No, thank you for that. I think that that's absolutely dead on. And something that um, you know, whenever I hear the term like white supremacy, that's totally right. But I think in this country, it has always been a kind of white Christian and specifically Protestant supremacy that uh, has been, that's where the kind of real, so the, you know, the second rise of the KKK in the 1920s, again, it was an ethno-religious movement. It was not just a kind of white supremacist movement. It had Jews and Catholics uh, in its crosshairs and not because of their ethnicity, because of their religion. Right. Um, so it was anti-atheist. It was anti-Catholic. It was anti-Jewish and very specifically pro-Protestant and pro-white. And so I think that dynamic is really deep in the DNA of kind of the American you know, dynamics and specifically when racial tensions get um, evoked. They just care. Even if it's only about race, it's never really only about race. I mean, it, it brings along because it's about cultural hegemony at the end of the day, cultural right. dominance. It's right. About power and power. And that has always in this country been wrapped up with kind of Christianity and whiteness. So a thing that happens right in this period, we're talking about 2010. Yeah. And 2010 is also the rise of the Tea Party, mm-hmm. which um, you say was not a strain of libertarian populism, but was in fact another revival of white Christian America. You want to talk a bit about what uh, about what analysis underlies that? Yeah. yeah. So we, we um, 
So every year, we every fall, we do a big study called the American Value Study with the Brookings Institution. Um, so we work with E.J. Dion and Bill Galston um, over there. And we sat down at, when we really started seeing the Tea Party um, pick up. We decided, well, who are these people? Let's try to get a profile of them and then try to figure out how we could link it to previous kind of movements on the right, like the Christian right. And so we actually did some analysis and asked some questions, and we were able to discern that, in fact, um, it wasn't a wholly, you know, just take this group and rebrand it with new T-shirts and uh, deploy them. Uh, but there was about half an, an overlap. So we asked tea, people who considered themselves part of the Tea Party, about half of them said that they had considered themselves part of the Christian right movement as well. Um, so it was basically kind of taking a big chunk of that group and then adding on, you know, some people who had been like less active in politics. I didn't think there was some genuinely new people, but it was an amalgamation that really, I think, took a lot of energy from the old Christian right movement and just slightly rebranded it. But also to, to the thing we were talking about a minute ago, rebranded it in an ethno-nationalist That's right. creedal yeah. sense, right? It, it you know, going back to wrapping itself in the Tea Party, right, in this American origin story, it is a weaving together of a certain idea of America and a, like, a racial backlash and a religious backlash and into all these different things that are stronger together than apart. Yeah, no, I think that's right that these, you know, these things get, they're like a, you know, rope, right, with a kind of multi-stranded rope that once they get kind of woven together, they're definitely stronger than you know, any of the single parts by themselves. I want to talk about the Sarah Bamari david mm. French fight because I think that this is a context in which to understand it. Um, and we had a big, we had a weeds on this. Um, if people want to go listen to a discussion about it from me and Jane, there's a little bit more specifically on this. But French is a guy, he's been a lawyer in religious liberty cases. He's a veteran. He is um, somebody who writes for National Review. But he he he's very much a pluralist. Um, and he tries to argue, he's also a never Trumper, I should say, which I think is pretty important here. And he argues for a pluralist approach to trying to rebuild Christian conservatism in a country at a time when it is under threat. And I think one way of thinking about his approach is it's an effort to be persuasive, right? It's an effort to put a face on it, and it's done authentically. It is his face, right? It is the one he really operates with in the world that is that is more appealing. But it also recognizes um, the possibility and potentiality of loss. And it also recognizes the idea that there might be some things more important, right? That 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 keeping the underlying structure of of how American politics works sound is more important than than winning the the short term fight. Hence his feeling that Donald Trump is a is a divergence that you you can't you can't permit um, his looseness his behavior the way he acts even if he gives the the Christian right some short term wins what he's doing to the country what he's doing to, to to ideas of the country to ideas of Christian of Christians in politics is too much damage he ends up under criticism from the New York Post op ed editor a guy named Sarab Amari uh, and Amari who is a Catholic makes an argument for an illiberal right. Um, and this begins unbelievably uh, tellingly with drag queen story mm. hour. There mm -hmm. is some library or some set of libraries where you can take your kids to have a story read to them by someone in drag, which honestly sounds lovely to me. But I recognize like that's a problem for Amari. But he sees this and tweets about it. And he's so furious um, that he writes this piece sort of against Frenchism. Uh, and it, it's building on some manifestos that he had signed on to before and, and so on. But but he writes this piece basically saying that in a country turning this far against Christianity, in a country where 
the fundamental moral looseness has gone this far that trying to win a losing fight through pluralistic approaches and trying to be nice to your enemies doesn't work, that you have to go into all-out war. And I would say he's very unclear on what this all-out war will do or how, if he's already losing it, he's going to win it by by fighting it more frontally. But nevertheless, the idea is that there, there's something happening here that the normal modes and mechanisms of American politics are no longer capable of correcting for and that if you are a Christian and you believe deeply in, in, in that creed and you believe that it should infuse your politics, then you have to understand yourself as being in a time of emergency. And his view on this, I think, has a lot to do with the sort of Flight 93 apocalypticism that that pre- preceded Donald Trump's election, this idea that, you know, America is like, you, you got to rush the cockpit. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe you crash anyway, but you got to try because otherwise what America is going to become is is just too disgusting to to be worth trying to save. And there's a lot of ways to, to take this and certainly I have my disagreements with it. But the context for it, it seems to me, is this fundamental sense of loss, this fundamental sense that the demographics and behind the demographics, the country and the culture and the politics are turning against you. And you have a little bit more time where you have enough power that you can maybe do something about it, but you don't have that much more time. And that's a very – that moment, that liminal space as you called it earlier, that's a pretty dangerous space um, historically in politics because if you're a minority, if you if you just know you can't win, well, then you make your peace be – like you figure out and pluralism protects you and hopefully you know, religious liberalism protects you. And you know, there's a lot then to like in, in the way America constructs itself. But if you've been a majority or you feel you're the majority still and you think you might lose and that might never come back – and you know, you look at those gay marriage um, numbers, and now you see Drag Queen Story Hour, which you know, twenty yeah. years ago is just not going to happen. Right. Then it changes the whole thing, and so that to me is is a context of this fight. And Trump ends up being a, a big player in it because people like Amari are sort of moving towards Trump as you know what it's time to like no more Mister Nice Guy. You know, we we need these street fighters, these brawlers. I think it's Jerry Falwell Jr. Right, mm-hmm. who's been a huge Trump fan in yep. exactly these terms, um, versus the sort of folks like French who. Their argument against them and the never-Trumpers is that they're just not taking the change in America seriously enough. If they think they can still worry about whether or not Trump is like a sort of shitty person, Mm -hmm. then you're not taking the kind of loss and the stakes of the fight seriously enough. But it's why I in some ways want to have this conversation with you now because I think this feeling of loss on the part of the religious right, it is is like becoming – it is weaponizing really Mm -hmm. fast, right? It's becoming very combustible. And it's becoming combustible in the context of these demographic changes, which do get discussed there. But whether or not they're discussed, they're very much felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and the degree to which they're felt and the degree to which people feel they're on the losing side, but still hopefully with the power to stop the loss, like that's a very touchy point in politics. That's my that's my yeah, summary. Well said. Um, <laughs> you know, a couple of things, uh, you know, that, that as I've kind of followed that debate and um, kind of reacting to what you've just said, you know, there is this kind of last stand mentality as one way of just summing it up, right? This is our last stand. And I think one of the things about, you know, Trump, I've never been a big subscriber that he's like a great political genius, but I do think at critical moments, he's got um, uncanny instincts for where his audience is. And, you know, one of the things I paid attention to is on the campaign trail, um, when he was talking to audiences, he knew to be white evangelical audiences. You know, he would kind of talk in these hushed tones, which in itself is sort of like a like preacher move, right? Rhetorical move. And he would say, look, folks, 
I'm your last chance. If you don't elect me this election, you will never see anyone like me again. And like he just knew, right, that this is what they were all feeling, that like, I'm it. I'm your last chance. You may not like what you've heard about me. You may not like that I curse. You may not like that I owe casinos. You may not like that I've, you know, cheated on my wives and I've been uh, married three times and divorced twice. You may not like any of that, but like, really, I'm your last chance. And I think that that appeal and that way of thinking is something that, you know, we've actually been able to see um, remarkably um, in, in a couple of polling questions, like one of them. Uh, I still think that I, I go back to a lot because it's just so remarkable that is a question about candidates character and how much it matters. Right. So we asked this question first in 2011, way back when. Um, and it was this fairly straightforward question. And it just said, do you think that a political candidate who's committed an immoral act in their private life can still behave ethically and fulfill their duties in their public life? So back in 2011, only 30 percent of white evangelicals said yes. Um, to this question. It's about what you'd expect from a group that calls itself like moral values, you know, voters, right? That no, your private life carries into your public life. That's what you'd expect. So we asked the same question in the uh, fall of 2016 as Trump is headed, uh, you know, he's got the nomination, he's headed toward um, uh, the final the final election. That number went to 72% um, of, of uh, white evangelicals. The, I honestly think saying, this is the wildest poll result around. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 uh, we, you know, we had to analyze it like five times, right? To say, okay, wait, that can't be right. Like go back, something's wrong. And like, you know, we kick the tire every which way we can. And sure enough, it's, it's, you know, it is what's happened. But what I think it indicates um, is a real shift in the political ethics. And, and this word emergency that you use is, is, you know, like uh, is, is really important, right? Because what happens in an emergency? The normal rules don't apply, right? Because things are so dire, you can kind of cast normal CSI and you can do military rule, right? right and political they, martial law. Right, martial law. Like you can – all these kinds of things and emergencies you can do. And I think that's the attitude really. And what it's meant is that it has been a sea change in the way um, – you know, if we kind of go back to kind of philosophy 101, right? A kind of deontological politics. It's about principle, right? We're going to state our principles. We're going to apply it to all candidates and let the chips fall where they may. I think that's a kind of moral values voter kind of way of thinking about politics. Uh, but what I think we have here is a very utilitarian ends justify the means uh, way. And and that's a remarkable shift for a, a group that so prided itself on uh, this kind of duty bound kind of principle based ethic to now say, no, actually, the ends are so it, things are so dire. We need this guy um, to kind of move things over here. And the other polling number I'll wrap around this is um, when we still had um, other contenders in the Republican primary. One of the questions that sorted Republicans between the candidates the most reliably was actually a question uh, that said um, something just exactly like this. Things have gotten so bad in this country that we need a, a leader who's willing to break the rules if that's what it takes to make things right. Huh. And we asked this question a number of times and every time it turned out that it, basically two thirds of those who were supporting Trump as the primary as their, of Republicans who were supporting Trump uh, agreed with that statement compared to only about four in 10 of Cruz and Kasich. Supporters, it, it's something example. that I find really interesting. So in the 2016 primary, it's not surprising to me really that Donald Trump dominated among white evangelicals, say, in the 2016 general election. But the 2016 yeah. primary had some very evangelical candidates and Trump dominated them. I mean, Mike Huckabee did yeah. not beat Trump among evangelical voters. And Cruz, right? And Cruz Southern did not Baptist beat himself. Trump among yeah. evangelical voters. And that was always a real tell. I think in what was happening here, because now you're in a you, now you're in a new phase, and I feel like that poll result is really helpful. 
that if what those voters were looking for wasn't an evangelical, but a street fighter, yeah, then you get Trump. Yeah, we know this. I don't know if you followed this debate between Russell Moore and Robert Jeffries. Um, I did not. Right. So, so Russell Moore is the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist. Convention, oh, I did. Actually, right? I do know what you mean. Right. So he's actually the basically the kind of chief lobbyist for the right. Southern Baptist Convention, uh, um, and then Robert Jeffries, who's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. Right. And so uh, I think uh, Russell Moore could fairly be described as kind of a never Trump evangelical, and Jeffries was one of the earliest people to jump on the Trump. Wagon um, early in the, in the primaries, and they were on NPR. They were debating, um, and you know Russell Moore was saying things like, "Well, if this is what it means to be evangelical, I'm not even sure I can continue to leave using the term." Um, and then Robert Jeffries kind of just flipped it and just said, "Well, look, let me tell you why I'm supporting Donald Trump." Um, he said, "You know, uh, when I think about who we need, like, yeah, things are so dangerous in the world today. Things are such a mess at home today. When I think about who I want in the Oval Office." Um, I want the meanest son of a you-know-what I can find, and that's why I'm supporting Donald Trump. So I want to get into something here, and I want to note also Rod Dreher is going to be on the show in a bit, who I think is going to be able to speak to this a little bit more directly from experience. But I want to try to pull out a thread of this that I think is harder to appreciate if you're not inside of it, but but I think is important to appreciate as a driving force in our politics. So when you listen to someone like that or Amari or all kinds of folks – you will hear a description of how politics feels to them that is very dire, that you know their enemies have collected with ruthless force. They will stop at nothing. They are turning them out of the, out of the conversation. They are destroying them. They want to salt the earth over them. And you, you, know, you think from the other side of this, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm one of their enemies, I think, <laughs> um, in politics. And you're hearing this, you're like, just like through elections, I mean, what what is happening? But then you think what they're what they're saying is that positions they held very comfortably just ten years ago, right. just in '08, right? Yeah. Take gay marriage, have become positions you can't, you almost can't hold in respectable company. There's still quite a few Americans who don't support gay marriage, but you don't hear it talked about in the public sphere. Um, trans issues, which uh, this world of people is very, very. Um, hyped up about, yeah. I would say. That has not gotten there yet, but it feels to many like it's on that path, right? There's a real effort to say like, you know, you 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 cannot be transphobic, right? That is not, that is like, it is like being racist. And a lot of these folks feel that what's been done to them is that their, their faith has been made into something like being racist. And I don't think that's true in a broader sense of their faith, right? I think there's a very strange emphasis on a couple of cultural flashpoints in Christian right theology uh, and and praxis, which I don't really – I don't know why they've decided to, to stay there as opposed to say on poverty. But on individual issues that have been chosen as a fight, um, it's there. Um, certainly abortion has also become a much more polarized and polarizing issue. And without offering agreement to this, right, the, I'm, I'm trying to describe it as generously as I can – there is a sense that um, that what has happened to them is not pluralistic, but is actually like a like a drawing of the boundary in which they're now outside of it. And if you feel like that, maybe this is more um, where you would go, right? I'm saying all this because if you feel like what has happened is that the rules of politics have been changed on you, like you don't just hold opinions that are losing, you hold opinions that you're no longer allowed to hold in some fundamental way. Um, and still say be the chair of the Mozilla Corporation, right, as happened yeah. a couple of years ago in California, um, then maybe you don't feel like anybody's playing by the rules. 
Uh, I think the rules of politics include judging things polite and impolite. I don't think that's something new that we've invented in the last five years. But I recognize a feeling that there's a sharp change and that it probably feels to people on the wrong side of it like um, like somebody is somehow cheating on them mm -hmm. um, and that the only way for them to fight back is to somehow do the same thing. I don't think that strategy makes sense, but but I think that I think that is impressionistically, I think that is like the the emotional core of what's going on here. Yeah. You know, uh, so the neurons that are firing right now is, is to try to distill it down. Um, you know, one of the things I, I think you and you you saw this in uh, Amari's piece, um, references to things like order, yes. I think, are important. Um, things out of place, uh, things chaotic, right? You, this order versus chaos, things where you know where their place is. Now you don't. Um, there's a kind of moral and social vertigo, I think, yeah. that many of these people are that that are feeling and, and genuinely feeling, right? I think the things, and it has to do with the, it does have to do with the speed, um, and it does have to do with it's changing around them and above their heads and behind their backs. It has that feel um, to it. But but if you kind of go back, I mean, one of the things I, I've been doing deeper, you know, dives into because um, a new book I'm working on on um, kind of the legacy of white supremacy in the country and American Christianity in in, in particular, and one of the sort of you know early. Um, tropes, particularly in evangelical theology, is a sense of an ordered, divinely ordained order to things, right? And it all, it, and it's a hierarchical ordering, typically. Like so, uh, you know, men and women have complementary roles, um, and men are over women. Um, that right. whites and blacks, um, God created them differently. They should be kept in separate spaces. With and whites were like, you know, in, in early evangelical theology, there was no mincing words. I mean, God created whites to sort of be in the place of directing and managing labor and created African Americans to be doing the labor. I mean, that really was very central to even evangelical theology. And so as all of this kind of hierarchical, I think, ordering has broken down, right, and and has been challenged by the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement and the gay rights movement and the egalitarian mindset, right? It it's no joke that it blows up that hierarchical, yeah, way of thinking. And I th so I think it really is a breakdown, not just here and there of this issue or that issue, uh, but each of those issues fit into a bigger whole of. And, and you even have like with Soha being uh, uh, Amari's piece, um, where he talked about a public square, not just kind of you know he used where he reordered to a common good, but then he continued. And ultimately mm -hmm. to the highest, to the highest good, good yeah. right? Which is a you know a very Catholic way of thinking about things, but it's also a theocratic way of thinking about things, right? The kind of a divinely ordered society um, that every everybody kind of knows their social role, everybody plays it, and essentially white men are at the top of it. Well, there's a, a generalized thing in politics where hierarchy is a really important question. And I think people underestimate this. So I think in a different way, Jordan Peterson is, is obviously not a member of the Christian right, right? right. Like that, that is not where he fits into politics of any sort. Um, that said, something that's interesting about him and when I've listened to him is he talks a lot about hierarchy. Mm -hmm. He is very, very wound up about the idea that natural or otherwise meritocratic hierarchies are being dissolved. And I will listen sometimes and I'll, I'll wonder, like, where are all these hierarchies that, that don't exist anymore? You know, even the Marxists I know, they they run sort of ordered structures where some people are on top and some people are on bottom and people give orders. And I, I don't see so much hierarchy being dissolved. But there is very much uh, to, to try to take the, the the point more generously, there is clearly an effort to 
call a lot of hierarchies either immoral or unnatural or, uh, to, to use a more popular academic terms, constructed, right? And some of those are racial hierarchies and some of those are economic hierarchies, right? A lot of the, a lot of the fight against inequality is a feeling that, that the economic hierarchy is immoral, mm -hmm. um, that it is either not based on anything worthwhile, right? Or that it is – even if it was based on – even if you believe the meritocracy was perfect, that it still wouldn't be moral to have an economic hierarchy like that because that's not where human worth comes from. These things interact in different ways. Amari's preferred hierarchies are not Peterson's. Peterson's are not someone else's, right? They're not, you know, Mitt Romney's. Yeah. You go, you can kind of go down the line. But I do think there's something very much important in what you were saying about the egalitarian mindset. I do think that there is a a a, a fundamental deep collision in politics right now, and has probably always been true. But yeah. and you see it in some psychological literature, is between egalitarian and hierarchical mindsets. Mm -hmm. And I don't I think it is hard for people who are very much in one to recognize how alien what they are saying sounds and feels to people in another and that these are not necessarily empirically held views about society and like how to maximize GDP growth right. or strengthen the American family. These are very deep things about how you experience the world on some fundamental like base psychology level. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And it's the way the world makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why this feels like so much at stake and why, you know, I think for me, just to take the same-sex marriage debate, right? So, so many liberal friends of mine, right, would just say, what's the big deal? Like, right. How in the world is allowing, you know, two men to marry going to threaten, like, my heterosexual uh, marriage? Like, and and But that was never really the point, right? The point was that in the hierarchical, you know, worldview, right, there's one kind of proper and appropriate marriage. And it has a very distinct role for male people and a very distinct role for female people. So you're not blowing up. It's not that you're really threatening this other marriage, but you're you're threatening a hierarchical ideal and a conception and a moral conception of marriage, right? That was like, I think fundamentally what was what was at stake. I mean, it's the same way women preaching or, you know, whatever the debate is, it really is about a threat to the idea of a hierarchical ordered world. And and I think when you're inside that world, um, the only alternative to that feels like a kind of free-for-all chaos. It feels like there's no other alternatives, right, once the hierarchy breaks down. I think there's something very profound in what you're saying, though, because it goes to the suspicion someone like Amari has begun to have um, of pluralistic democracy. Because when you're in a pluralistic world, you have to find some way of debating issues that crosses moral foundations, Right, you have to have some way that somebody who believes in the the vision of um, heterosexual marriage that you're talking about, and then somebody who believes in same-sex marriage, can have a conversation. And the way you end up doing that is through the language of technocracy. Right, the way you end up doing that for the most part is you end up in these debates about what it will do to the American family. You end up in these weird debates for all these kinds of issues about what it'll do to the economy or what it will do to rates of single parenthood or like what is a long-term effect on children. And in some fundamental way, I think the opponents of gay marriage lost the fight as soon as it became actually about showing harm mm -hmm. because gay marriage isn't harmful. Like it isn't. Like you cannot find yeah. the evidence of that. It, it isn't harmful. But I remember I would read National Review during this period and you would have these unbelievably convoluted arguments about how it's going to destroy like this or that premise of society. And I think that's something that when you get into these debates about ordering society around the highest good gets to is if you're having the debate on the grounds of a kind of pluralistic common ground argument – 
it's very hard to hold to the highest good because it doesn't work, right? You end yeah. up having to try to debate something where you've kind of lost before the debate has even begun because, in fact, the Bible is not built to maximize American GDP. <laughs> like the, 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 the religious ordering of the world sustains its authority or it, or it looks for its authority yeah. to something that is far outside anything that we can write down in a Brookings white paper. And, and that's where pluralism, to go back to something we were talking about earlier, or, or sort of political liberalism, becomes a real danger to these ways of thinking. It, it forces them to justify themselves in terms that they were never built for. And so over time, in terms that they lose. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Bible, too, I mean, the one thing to just add there is like, you know, well, which Bible, right? Are we talking about the Torah? Are we talking about the King James Version, the Protestant King James Version? Are we talking about the Catholic Version? Has it more books in it than the Protestant Version has? Like, there were big fights over this in the early 20th century, too. But um, I think that the real problem is, right, that the highest good um, is not something we agree on, right? Um, and, and, you know, that's a conception of God and the good life that flows from kind of theological commitments or other kinds of worldview commitments and I think, you know, we're in a society where that's that's never a good starting point because there's a plurality of those views out there, right? So how do we get on with human flourishing um, it, when we don't agree on these ultimate ends? And I think that's always been the American project, really. And, and so I think part of what's happening here um, that I think, you know, we're at – I do think we're in this liminal space. I think it's a troubling and dangerous time to be sure – um, one good thing, though, I, that I think might be, come out of it is that it, it is bringing us back to fundamental basic principles. Like, what do we believe about a pluralistic society? Do we, in fact, believe um, in a pluralistic society? And there's, you know, there's some evidence that we are even divided on that. I mean, we, we did this or poll. clearly divided on that. Yeah, that we did this poll, like, just on, um, you know, religious uh, diversity. Do you want to live in a uh, and we gave people kind of two poles. Do you want to live in a, a country made up of uh, religions from all over the world or do you want to live in a country that's fundamentally a Christian uh, country? And we basically have um, about half of Republicans in that I want to live in a Christian country space, but the other half of them divided. Um, but like two-thirds of Democrats over here and I want to live in a religiously pluralistic space. So our parties are even divided over the ideals, right, of where we're of where we're headed. Uh, I mean, I think there's an alternative to, so let's just fight it out to the death, which is, I feel like, you know, what the uh, Amari piece was, right? Like, just, we're just in a Machiavellian world. Let's get out the knives and see who's standing at the end of the day. Um, I mean, I think another, you know, another way to go um, is to really try to think back, okay, well, what kind of a country do we want? How can we support these, you know, values? And, but I think it does mean, and this is maybe the rub, it does mean we're going to have to accept that our, preferred opinion doesn't win the day every single time. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman, She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or find it wherever you listen. I want to take the pessimistic view on this, but I want to do it in a, in a slightly weird way. 
So as I mentioned earlier, I've had some debates with Andrew Sullivan and others uh, about this idea that the problem is that as Christianity recedes from its dominant role in, in American life, you're seeing what, what happens in a post-Christian society. And that's that Kyle Kashuv doesn't get to go to Harvard. And, uh -huh. you know, but but more broadly, that there's a lack of forgiveness, a lack of grace, uh, a, a, a flowing into political tribalism, that energy that used to go into religious affiliation, and that that's a more dangerous place for it, that politics can never take the place of religion. I'm always very skeptical of this, in part because I look at the political coalitions that are most Christian, and I don't see a surfeit of forgiveness. I don't see a surfeit of grace. I don't see so much um, gentleness and generosity. But there was something about that dominant culture, which was, in fact, a, a dominant Protestant Christian culture, that created some space in which these debates didn't happen. That one way to keep a debate from getting too polarized is to suppress it. And the Protestant Christian white dominant culture for particularly like mid-20th century America, it did not debate the idea of liberal democracy. It did not debate the idea of pluralism. It maybe didn't live up to it, but it more or less mm -hmm. believed in it. And that now as the dominant culture has receded, I think the opposite of what you're saying is taking place. We are getting back, yes, to those underlying questions of what do we really believe. But it turns out when you ask that underlying question, we don't really agree. Things we took for granted, we're not really – we can't really take for granted. We took them for granted because there was a group that had the power to enforce them. It felt comfortable with what they meant for it, right? Like what pluralism meant for white Protestant Christians, but it also was committed to them as ideals. And like that was an equilibrium that mm -hmm. had some benefits. But now we're moving into, we're moving into free-for-all. And I think something we're seeing in free-for-all is that no, like if we have that debate, it turns out a lot of people say, I don't really want a liberal democracy. I don't want to lose. And not losing is a lot more important to me than the process by which I don't lose. Yeah. No, I mean, I, clearly we're seeing some very overt expressions of this. And, I, you know, I do, and I, I'm almost careful. Like, I don't I don't think that President Trump is like the cause of any of this. I really think he's the expression yeah. of all this. I mean, you know, when I uh, wrote the end of White Christian America. I mean, that was way before Trump was on the scene. The data I was using was before Trump. And yet all the trends were moving toward yep. someone like him to kind of just step into this void. Um, but but here, here's the thing. I, I do think that um, leadership matters. And that's why I think um, when we have a president who's so willing to trample, um, you know, basic fundamental constitutional norms, um, that sort of really does blow up the game. I think part of it does depend on kind of leadership from the top being willing to sort of like curb uh, themselves. You know, and there, it always involves, I think, some sense of commitment to principle that at least has some curbing effect. Maybe it doesn't fully prevent the worst kinds of behaviors, but, you know, it does have some something that people can be held accountable to. And I think that's one of the okay, mystifying things I think about the Trump presidency is like never apologize never admit you're wrong, you know, just plow ahead. Um, and, and and if you need to kind of trump, you know, tramp over some some norms uh, to kind of keep yourself in power, well, you know, so be it. And that people are basically, um, you know, his deepest supporters from the beginning were saying like, yeah, that's the kind of leadership we think we need at this, you know, dangerous moment in our history. Let, let me ask you something. I have a theory here, but I want to hear, I want to hear your take on it first, which is, does this create an opportunity for religious left? When people like Pete Buttigieg are running for president saying, you know, there's not an opening for, for a forthrightly religious left, are they right or do they misunderstand the nature of the religious coalitions? 
I guess I'm going to side a little bit on that latter point. Um, you know, the, the, the challenge has always been um, – so on the Christian right, um, it is essentially uh, a very homogeneous group. It's white evangelical Protestants. They live in the same area of the country pretty much. They share the same history. They share the same theology. So activating that group is – does not – it's not rocket science, right? I mean you kind of know what they believe. You know where they are. You know who they are. Um, and so you can have a very simple script. Um, and a set of talking points, and you just hit them, and and you've got them. On the on the left, I mean, if you're a Democratic candidate and you're looking at the religious coalition on the left, right? It's not just white Christians, right? It's African American. There's more African American Christians in the bunch in the lot uh, than there are white. You're looking at a growing Latino, Catholic, and Protestant, you know, versions of the Latino religion. Uh, a growing group of unaffiliated uh, folks that are in themselves complex, as we were talking about. And then you've got Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, and increasingly Muslims who used to be more divided but are now, as a result of you know much of the recent Republican kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric, are now increasingly siding uh, on the Democratic side. Um, so I think if you're thinking about like a religious left, I mean, um, is a very complicated um, coalition. It's certainly not a thing in the way that the Christian right is. And there's no institutions that sort of bridge those groups in any – like really fundamental way that would be a way to kind of organize. And there are uh, certainly some groups doing doing work there, but uh, the religious left as a political force, I think, is, uh, you know, less a reality than more of a kind of theory and a concept. That, that seems right to me that, yeah. that you, you've outlined my theory as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I think about that that's just interesting to, to hit up my own hobby horse for a minute is that there's a funny way in which our conversation about interest group politics gets very confused. So all, all um, parties, all politicians play to identity and they play to interest. Um, that's just like the nature of politics. You don't get away from it. Right. The thing about Democrats, because of the nature of their coalition, uh, it, it can look kind of superficially while well, there's white and non-white. There's religious and less religious. But, but as you're saying, actually what you have is sort of organized and disorganized, right? You have many and fewer. And so a Democratic candidate who, say, is going to win the, the 2020 primary, they need to be able to win New Hampshire and South Carolina. They mm -hmm. need to be able to win traditionalist um, African-American Christian voters, and they need to be able to win young white liberals. Like they're going to need to build a coalition like that, whereas someone like Trump can win with a much more homogeneous coalition. And so you have this funny thing where identity and interest group politics are most visible when they're in fact least powerful. Um, the world in which like a Hillary Clinton has to talk to a bunch of groups, she does. But on the other hand, no one group has all the power over her. Whereas like a Donald Trump or, or others in the Republican Party appealing to that uh, appealing to that world, they can speak in a slightly more direct way because they're talking to a more uh, a, a coalition that is more internally similar to itself. But that coalition is much more power. Um, if they oh, yeah. if, if they yeah. if they walked away from part they can't right like there's nothing else there's nowhere else to go you can't put the you can't put the blocks together in a different way and I just think it's a fascinating thing you're you're not going to get the the same kind of religious left you do on the right because the left includes religious and irreligious and right. it includes so many different kinds of religions and on the one hand you do then get into this whole thing of like stacking different groups on top of each other. But part of that stacking keeps it from becoming one kind of thing, which is when an identity is one identity, it's a much more powerful form of identity than when it's many identities in coalition with each other. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, one uh, just way to put a fine point on it um, is that uh, the Republican Party today, if you just look at self-identified Republicans, um, they're about seven in 10 white and Christian. 
Uh, but if you look at the Democratic Party, they're only three in ten, white and Christian, and the rest is just, you know, a whole like assortment of religious people and irreligious people, you know, non-religious people, um, and they've been drifting further that way. So ten years ago, the Republican Party was eighty percent white and Christian, and Democrats were half white and Christian. So we're increasingly kind of getting this dynamic where um, if if those trends continue, you know, we'll essentially have a white Christian party. Um, and then the party of kind of everybody else, you know, and uh, the Democrats have the kind of demographic wins at their back because those groups are growing while the kind of Republican base is shrinking. But the activ activation issues are much more, you know, multiplied in, in terms of their complexity among Democrats. And that's a very deep kind of polarization. I mean, when you add party polarization yeah. to racial Race and religious and religion. polarization, yeah. I mean, you're you're looking at some of the most flammable elements in life. Yeah, and I think once you reach a tipping point too, you know, it's one thing to be even 60%, you know, white and Christian, but once you reach kind of two-thirds or more in one party, it begins to you begin to miss seeing every anyone else who's not that right. It just looks like the whole party is that way, and then it becomes a kind of self perpetuating uh, thing. the The only thing to say that um, about this too is that as this happens, the other thing we've been seeing, um, you know, as you know, is the rise in negative um, partisanship, right? right? And so it's less that Democrats love this coalition that they're a part yeah. of; uh, it's more they hate the Republicans and vice versa. Uh, you know, we've asked about this in, in polls. You know, we see majorities of both parties. When we give people a choice, what do you think about the other party? Do you think uh, three three choices? Do you think they are generally moving the country in the right direction? Do you think they're misguided but not dangerous? Or do you think they're so fundamentally misguided that they pose a fundamental threat to the country? Majorities of both party pick that third option uh, to about the other, right, that they are fundamentally posing a threat to the country. So this is literally what my book is about. Yeah. And one of the major arguments in it is that it's inextricably related to what we were saying a second ago, that the fact of the matter is the coalitions have become much more different from each other. Yeah. I mean, when you look across and you're white and Christian and you look at a coalition that is two-thirds non-white Christian, that coalition doesn't just believe different things in you, but it represents to you a real loss for your group, right? If, if they are in power, yeah. you really are not. I mean, yeah. you know, we've been hearing this debate playing out a little bit in the Democratic Party right now, and it's playing out around the person of Joe Biden, who comes from an era in politics that did not – that was not particularly in Congress divided in this way. And that was an era in politics where, you know, his, his point is you could work with people who are very unlike you. Um, you know, you could work with a Southern segregationist and, you know, you didn't have to – you may disagree on segregation, but you could still get things done together. And the thing that I think he misses in that debate is that the nature of that depolarized period was actually that they weren't so unlike you. Mm. I mean, you may mm -hmm. have disagreed on, on segregation, but the white segregationists could, who were often in the Democratic Party um, could right. work then with Repub conservative Republicans in the Republican Party who were also white and also believe, you know, were fine with segregation and and, and it went on. Yeah, there or was, with the civil rights faction inside the Democratic Party. Exactly. Just on the same side of the they aisle. they were Democrats, yeah, right? There, right? There were things yeah. that were, were pulling them together. Um, and But the more you get the more you look over to the other side and just it's all different, it believes different things, it looks different, it prays or doesn't pray in different places, then you get into this place where, I mean, of course you look and then say, I'm afraid of them. Of course you look and then say they're a threat to, to, yeah. to my way, to my view of what the country should be. Um, we kind of 
portray polarization as irrational, but rising a rising sense of polarization and even of enmity is a pretty um, predictable response to the other coalition mm. becoming more different from you. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and um, you know, one other pl- place where we've seen this become really personal um, is we we asked people. Um, we actually picked up this question. It was a really interesting question. They got asked first in 1960. Um, and it basically asked um, pe- members of both parties, um, how worried you, would you be if your son or daughter married someone of the opposite political party? So in 1960, um, only 5% of Republicans and Democrats, was essentially the same, said they'd be somewhat or very worried if their son or daughter married someone of the opposite political party. So we decided to re-ask this question um, uh, this past year, and uh, actually just early 2019. And it turns out that today... Um, when you ask Republicans how worried they are, 35% of Republicans say they're someone who are very worried that their son or da- if their son or daughter married a Democrat. And when you ask Democrats, it's 45%, right? So if you look at how personal it's become, um, you know, it's like seven times uh, as personal for Republicans and it's nine times as personal compared to 1960 uh, for Democrats. That's an amazing stat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one other little tidbit here um, uh, on, on that same question. We also asked a bunch of other questions like how worried you be if your son or daughter married somebody of another race, of another religion, who was transgender, who was the same gender as your son or daughter. And if you flip this all around, you say, OK, well, who are Republicans most worried about their son or daughter marry and who are Democrats most worried? Um, it turns out that um, Republicans are most worried out of that whole list of uh, their son or daughter marrying someone transgender or of the same gender as their son or daughter. And Democrats are most worried about their son or daughter marrying a Republican. I'm not going to be able to to beat that as a closing (laughs) comment for this show. So um, let me ask you our our final question, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, I've been reading a lot, um, trying to figure out the big question, I think, you know, as we've been talking about, like, how do we get here and where are we going are kind of the big, you know, questions uh, here. And and one um, that, that I want to throw out is um, uh, Carolyn Renee DuPont, and it's a book called Mississippi Praying, Southern White Evangelicals and the Civil Rights Movement, um, where she does take up this question of what were white churches doing during the Civil Rights Movement? We hear a lot about what black churches were doing. What were white churches doing, particularly in Mississippi? Uh, and the answer is they were part of the massive resistance, right, to civil rights, but that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Um, and then uh, two others, um, Jim and Deb Fallow's book, Our Towns, um, that is a kind of uh, the subtitles, A 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America, where they basically took their small plane and kind of went into a bunch of small towns and then wrote up about how people are trying to solve their problems. And I think there is some uh, distance between the kind of hyperpolarization we've been talking about uh, there's some looseness between that and the way people are actually trying to solve their problems on the ground, maybe a little bit hopeful that it doesn't mm-hmm. go all the way down uh, to the ground. Um, and then lastly, um, kind of small, basically extended essay book by Ibu Patel um, called Out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity in America's Promise. Um, and uh, that was out just last year. Um, kind of full disclosure, um, I write a response to Ibu's book, but I read a response to it at the end. I think it's interesting precisely because I don't agree with everywhere that Ibu's going. He's a lot more optimistic. Uh, he has, and I, we've sort of joked that like, you know, the brown Muslim guy is a lot more optimistic than the white Christian guy on these on these issues. Um, but but I, th- I think he's kind of staking out um, well, that, that fits your polling, right? Yeah, an optimistic, <laughs> yeah, an optimistic uh, path forward. Robert Jones, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Robert Jones for being here, to Malachi Brodus for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. I'll take a moment here, a moment of personal privilege to say that after the N.K. Jemison episode, a bunch of you had recommended the King Killer Chronicles to me, Patrick Rothfuss's uh, work. 
as just like the greatest fantasy going today. And it really was great. I just finished book two of it. Um, and now I know what all the Game of Thrones people feel because there is no book three yet and nobody quite knows when book three is going to come out. And it's devastating because the first two were great. But having gotten this wonderful recommendation from the EK Show community, I wanted to pass it back on. So if you're looking for something um, wonderful and the the growing up fantasy genre to read, you should check out the King Killer Chronicles um, trilogy, I guess. The first one is called The Name of the Wind, and it's just a fantastic book. And they're both great. And I really want number three to come out. Anyway, but thank you to all of you. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And this show is a product of the Vox Media Podcast Network. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.